At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. Hi folks, how you doing? Hope this finds you well. Uh, you find me the morning after the launch of the brand new series of Ahsoka fan event. I was invited along to host the and unveil the first two episodes of the brand new uh, Disney Star Wars series that is hitting your Disney Plus platforms 23rd of August, which is tomorrow, but from 2am, which is much earlier than usual. Uh, Rosario Dawson reprises her role as Ahsoka, who we've seen very small bits of in Mandalorian and the Book of Boba Fett, but this is her all singing, all dancing, Dave Filoni uh, created, written, uh, partly directed uh, journey. And I've seen the first two episodes. It is outstanding. Uh, so if you have been missing out on your regular Star Wars series hitting Disney Plus, then I highly recommend that you check it out. It's kind of got, for me, it's got the trappings of all the things that I loved about the original films. It's got a great tone to it. The droids are brilliant. All those kind of things, you know, those little elements that you kind of take for granted, but kind of all come together to make it brilliant. The colouring of it as well really harps back to the original films and things like that. And Rosario is bewildering as Ahsoka, just calm, collected, completely Jedi-like, almost Buddhist-like. It's fantastic. So there we go. But anyway, on this episode this week, we've got something slightly different for you. Uh, as I'm joined by producer Matthew Metcalf and journalist and organised and cybercrime expert Misha Glennie, author of McMafia and Dark Market, you might have seen and watched uh, McMafia which was um, made into a brilliant drama uh, with James Norton in the lead. But they joined me separately to discuss this mental documentary called Billion Dollar Heist. It's about one of the most daring cyber heists of all time, uh, the Bangladeshi central bank theft. This is the thing I love about documentaries is it takes you down into a journey in an area that you kind of step in knowing nothing about, but you kind of come out the other side with many things actually, wanting to know more. It makes you, this made me adjust things in my life. And it's kind of opened up the opportunity to talk to these two about a subject that we don't really cover on this podcast that much, but one weirdly that does connect to a lot that's going on at the minute, AI. So weirdly, it's got a really relevant conversation with regards to the entertainment industry. Billion Dollar Heist is scored by Lachlan Anderson, and we'll hear some of his music during the interview, but we'll begin with some 8-bit gaming music that features in the film Battleman by Cody O'Quinn.
Hey, Matthew, how are you? I am well. It's evening here in New Zealand, and it's uh, the sun has gone down, but it's uh, the end of the day. You're in England, right? This is bright and yeah. sunny August morning. Yeah. I mean, we've got a little bit of blue sky. We've not had the best uh, summer so far, so fingers crossed. It seems to be that thing as soon as the kids go back to school, summer starts. So I think that that's kind of what we're aiming for. We go back to school in New Zealand just randomly. Our kids go back to school in February, which is the equivalent of your August. So they go back to school on like one August. So the hottest month of the year is when school starts back. It's yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah, always the same. Um, listen, I had the absolute pleasure of chatting to uh, Misha the other day about your your fantastic film. So it's lovely to get the opportunity to to have a lovely kind of full circle conversation really about the, the film and the story. But congratulations first and foremost. Oh, thank you. You know what? I watched it at the New Zealand International Film Festival about two weeks ago. And although I've watched the film countless times, probably into six figures, or sorry, three figures, I mean, like over a hundred times, I still found myself going, this is just a bonkers, crazy story. <laughs> it really does fit into the truth is stranger than fiction category. Where did this, the journey for you with this story start? It, it started actually with the work of Misha, Misha Glenny. So he, he'd done a whole lot of work on sort of what you might call the dark web. And I'm one of those people that can't even program a DVD player or a microwave. So <laughs> the dark was like really kind of fascinating. And I was really interested in sort of the history of cybercrime. And Misha's done some fabulous work around that. And we started speaking to Misha and he's just like this incredible wealth of ideas. And that led to further discussions, which led to further discussions, which led to kind of this sort of what you might call the granddaddy story of them all about cybercrime, the Bangladesh bank heist increasingly coming up in the conversation, mm. which eventually led us to kind of going, you know what, this is the story we've got to tell because it's, it's just bonkers and you wouldn't believe it unless it was true you know yeah. like just the whole concept of it is so crazy and it's such a cautionary tale and it's such a tale for our times that once it got into our head it was like a little worm we couldn't get it out it's quite funny isn't it because you if if someone had written this story you go this is so unbelievable but isn't it brilliant how sometimes the best stories are the real ones look i mean obviously i'm involved in storytelling for a living and i always know that that saying truth is stranger than fiction is true, you know? <laughs> and one of the things in good storytelling you're always looking for, right, is, and I've already said this word bonkers, is sometimes what you're looking for in a good story is just this sense of no way. Really? No, that can't be true. That's ridiculous. And we have to remember that there's a really unfortunate side to the story. Like a lot of people were hurt and we mustn't yeah. forget that a lot of damage was done People, the people of Bangladesh who can ill afford to lose $81 million had this stolen from them. We have to remember that despite the bonkers nature of the story, it was a theft. But looking beyond that, it's a story that also causes you to go, no, surely not. No, really? Mm. And it just keeps going like that. It just keeps topping itself at every level to the point where you've got people washing cash at casinos in Manila where they're not even trying to win and they're treating it like a nine to five job and clocking off at 5 p.m. and going, oh, well, we've spent our millions today back to the room. It just keeps giving as a story. It's a crazy story. When you're thinking about how, you know, collaborating with your other creatives and how to tell the story visually, 
because that's a really you know with this world as well it's not necessarily the easiest thing to to try and project that onto a screen you know and tell it in a in a captivating way and you've managed to do that brilliantly through the animation and things as well in the, in the film but when you're coming to the decision about how you tell the story visually what were the conversations about this and about how you wanted the story to unfold on the screen look i love how you're asking the tough questions because you're really getting into the heart of the filmmaking journey now and the stuff that caused us so much agony you know, it, it can Sorry. be really easy when you... No, no, it's good. I actually love that you're asking because it can be really easy. It's just words to say, you know, I always sort of joke, you know, it's very easy. You can just write on a page and the aircraft carrier sailed up the English Channel. And it's so easy to write that. But to actually deliver that visually is so much harder. And when we got into the really the physical nuts and bolts of making the film, there were things like the cyber aspect of it, you know, the breaking through all the security protocols within the bank, that doesn't really exist. That's a digital only concept. It's just zeros and ones moving in wires and in cyberspace. And it's like, how do you show that? And one of the biggest breakthroughs that I'm kind of really proud of in the film, because we spent ages on that, like we drew we drew storyboards and we tried all these different ideas and we would always come back to it and go, yeah, it's kind of not that interesting though. And then one day there was this breakthrough and I don't know why, but I'm a ch sort of a child of the 80s and video games in the 80s, we had games like Choplifter and Elevator Action, Cigarelli. But in particular, I, I remembered the way that the games and, and I sort of riffed with everyone in the edits, the whole sort of team. We started riffing about the way that games were in sort of the 80s and 90s. And we were thinking about like Sonic the Hedgehog, like really 30 years ago, kind of iterations of that. And we were starting to go, wouldn't it be cool if we showed, you know, the cyber part of it is kind of like elevator action, like, hmm. a, an, like, a, you know, like a really Nintendo game from the late 80s and the early 90s. And so that idea then went through this huge multiple processes until we eventually invented a game in our minds called Cyber Heist Action. And then we created a musical sting for it. And then that process allowed us to start imagining this character who went around with a drill, smashing their way through certain barriers and getting keys until eventually they powered up and found their way in. Such is the nature of the creative process that that took months. And when I was watching it, two weeks ago on the cinema screen, I was like, oh my God, the audience was laughing at that. And I was thinking, oh my God, I swear to God, that's six months of work just to come up with that little five minute sequence of cyber heist action. So that's my long winded answer to the craziness of the question. It absolutely works. But you know, what you've also done as well is bring in that element of, of music as well. And, and that was something, again, it's kind of the conversation around music with you know, a project like this, I imagine was not an easy one as well, or an obvious one, maybe in terms of what you well, wanted Lachlan to do and, and involving him in the project. Well, look, actually, what we was, I was working with editor Weather Mole Press, and we were talking about um, music, and we had this music in, and it just wasn't kind of working at certain places. And then I came back and Weather said, I've got this idea, you're probably going to hate it. And he showed it to the wider team and he had put rap music in, in, in one of the scenes where they're talking about money and the craziness of it. 
And he had put this kind of rap track in and it was, we couldn't license it, but he put this track in and it was all talking about gangsters and money and go get your money and stuff like yeah. that. And all of us just laughed and all was like, oh my God, that's bonkers. That's exactly what should be there. So then Lachlan went away and composed a rap song, you know, and a rap track and dropped it into that section. And we all loved it and went, this is so what it is. Because everything about the film is is just kind of dark humor. Here's this kind of a fun fact. One of the things we were inspired by, you've seen like, um, oh my God, I'm having an embarrassing moment now, Succession. So yeah. I think we've all seen Succession, right? And you know the pilot of Succession, it's got Kendall Roy, you, you open and Kendall Roy's in the back of like an S-Class Mercedes and he's got his big headphones on and he's listening to like this hardcore kind of, you know, like gangster rap track. Yeah. And he's kind of going, yeah, yeah. And like the, the driver's kind of looking at him going, what? Yeah, who you is know? this guy? Yeah. And we started talking about just the ludicrous black humor of that kind of world, you know, where it's high stakes, high money, and how it works so well to contrast the ludicrousness of that, the greed involved with, with music and with musical tracks that just completely throw that out the window and poke fun at it. You know, that we're really saying to the audience, we don't endorse this, guys. You know, ladies and gentlemen of the audience, we do not endorse this. It's bonkers. It's yeah. criminality run mad. But look yeah. how crazy it is. So that's that's kind of where the music really started to take hold in the film is when we embraced its inner ludicrousness. You also have that brilliant element of almost like a thriller as well that kind of runs through it as well, which I think is really prevalent there as well, you know, in terms of that kind of point of view of the the hackers and stuff of trying to get to the finish line, opposed to the people trying to kind of go, hold on, we realized this was happening and kind of stuff. So you have these kind of two things run in parallel and that kind of crescendo of a kind of thriller almost as a viewer, you're kind of going, what's going to happen? No, no, look, absolutely. Look, you're 100% right to call it a thriller because it is a thriller. It's a crime thriller, you know, or more accurately, it's a heist thriller. And you've got to follow all the rules of a heist, you know, because that's what you're speaking to is the absolute structure of the film. You know, like every heist follows a set of rules, right? So a heist starts with someone who comes across some information about how they can break into something. By accident, someone tells them that something's leaked to them, but they find out. Then they assemble a team of people and then they go in and they start breaking into the bank, the vault, whatever it is, the New York Federal Reserve in this case. And then it goes well. And then in all heist films, you get to a moment where it doesn't go well. Just a little weenie mistake happens, you know, just a little weenie mistake. And it all starts to unravel. And then it gets worse. And then in a heist film, the authorities start to get onto you and start to chase you and you're running for your life. And that's really what happens in this story. So you're so right. It's absolutely a heist thriller. And it really conforms to those stories. And we very deliberately told the story following those beats because we wanted the audience to get that kind of the enjoyment, the entertainment you get from a good old-fashioned heist thriller. 
you know, it's a documentary, but I think it's so brilliant the way that you've kind of creatively constructed the story that you you do get that same feeling, you know, as if you are watching, like you say, a kind of good old fashioned heist movie. And it got me really thinking about my favorite kind of my favorite heist movies. And there's a huge list of great heist movies. Yeah, um, heist movies are awesome. <laughs> like one of my favorites. Look, you know, uh, we talk about. One of my favorites is 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 a really good friend of mine, Roger Donaldson. So Roger Donaldson's The Bank Job. That is just, you know, that one that is so good. And we would talk about that film as a team, as a creative team, and we'd sort of say, The Bank Job, that is such a great heist film. Like that's such a great reference for this yeah. story. Right into the fact when we think about the, you know, in that film, they dig their way into the vaults and they use thermic lances. And so when we were developing the cyber heist action game, we were talking about, you know, in that film, Jason Statham gets in and he digs in and thermic lances his way up through the concrete. And yeah, you're so right. There's nothing the state can't do, whether it's sharks, bank jobs, he's there. My son, <laughs> my 10 year old son went to watch Meg 2 on the weekend and he came out just raving about it. So I'm with you. There's nothing the state yeah, can't do. Big fan of the state. I even I, I love as well where where um, creatives, you know, like yourselves, kind of think outside the box with that type of thing. Like I really loved Edgar Wright's Baby Driver. You know, in terms of the way that 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 yeah. was kind of you know with the music and stuff, and and just kind of how sharp the 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 collaboration was between you know the editing and the music and things like that, and the the almost choreography, the whole thing as well. It's just it's a great genre of filmmaking, I think. Oh, God, yes. Like crime thrillers are perpetually delivering because they deliver all your things you need in a great story, which is you need drama, you need an antagonist, you need a protagonist, and you need resistance, and you need pressure, you know? And so when you have a crime thriller, you've got a protagonist, you've got an antagonist, normally the law, and you've got pressure as in bad luck and the law is coming down on you, yeah. and you've got consequences, which you go to jail forever or die if you don't pull it off. So great storytelling. When you are thinking about, you know, your next project, is it, do you react to things that connect with you or do you seek things out or is it a combination of the two? You know, I love how you're asking me all the cool questions because you know what? Oh, it's a little bit of all of the above. Some of the films I'm most proud of have literally come down to, I couldn't get to sleep and I was turning something over in my mind and it was like a little worm in my mind and it wouldn't go away, little tick. And eventually you just kind of wake up and you go, oh, I've got to make this film. Like I've, in this idea, it won't go away. It just keeps pinging away in my head. So, <laughs> you know, when I look at, I can look back on so many films that I've been involved in and they've come from this place of, oh, that'd be such a cool way to tell a story. You know, like, couldn't we do that? Um, or couldn't we do it this way? Or couldn't we do it that way? Mm -hmm. And then once it gets in your head, it's like a tune that won't leave. Yeah, and you yeah. Just, you just, it's just like the only, you've got to get it out of yourself and you've got to tell the story. It was really fascinating chatting to, to Misha with, you know, with his brain and how, how involved he is in, in that kind of, you know, cyber world, geopolitics, all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, was, I, I learned so much from the, the, the conversation uh, with him as well. And I think the film does so much in terms of, you know, as well as it being a great piece of, entertainment it really informs as well you know in terms of all the stuff that's going on you know digitally with regards to crime and and is that something you think about you know in terms of the kind of the informative nature of the filmmaking oh, well, look i'll tell you what like 
I roll with two-factor authentication now on everything. You know, like, <laughs> let me say to all of your listeners, two-factor authentication, trust me, get that stuff. Like, two-factor authentication makes the likelihood of you being hacked go down a whole lot, you know, so get that. But even beyond that, one of the privileges, and it is a privilege of what I do, is that for a moment in time in your life, you get to really learn about something, you know? So for a moment in time, I have the privilege, and again, it is a privilege, to speak to and hear from the finest cyber minds in the world. And that is really a lovely thing that makes your life rich and interesting, you know? Like mm. talking to Misha is a great way to feel like you should have paid more attention in school, you know? Like <laughs> he is so bright and so learned and so lucid and able to explain things. And you always just end up sort of looking at the ground going, oh my God, you know, I really should, have, should read more books. But he does it in a way that's really easy for you to understand. You know, sometimes you get people who just talk at you and you're kind of going, hold on, wait, 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 wait. He's so brilliant in the way that he talks about things that he really makes it accessible for everybody, I think. And that's what's brilliant, uh, I think, about the way that it he- It is, it is. And- and that's the, again, that's such the lovely part of my job is just for that moment in time for the, it's really like three years, but for three years, I get to learn from these people, talk to them. They welcome me into their lives in a way. And you're kind of part of what they do. And it's the most interesting and amazing way to be, to just learn like this all the time. You know, I've made movies about racing car drivers, about MotoGP bike riders. I've, I've made movies with famous economists. And in each time, just get welcomed into this amazing world where someone's devoted mm. themselves to this like one subject and you hear from them and learn from them and it's so wonderful it's stressful yeah. because you've got to deliver <laughs> for them you know you don't want to let them down but it's kind of cool at the same time do you know what's next look i'm always just working on crazy things you know i i, I don't want to give anything away but i can say that I've been looking at, I'm spending a lot of time looking at late 90s television commercials and music videos because Ooh, that was that's a my world. really, like a really interesting time. And I'm really interested in that time and the creativity and the art and the way of communicating that was going on in that time. So I don't want to give anything else away, but I'm really into that time. Nice. I was on MTV in the 90s. So that was my... Um... No yeah, yeah, yeah. Which weirdly kind of was broad. MTV UK was broadcast in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, so um. So I yeah, love I was MTV. I, I was, are you kidding me? I was. I was probably on your TVs when you were watching those videos as well, doing Select <laughs> and uh, Hitlist UK and all that kind of stuff as well. So, um. Oh my god. It was. It was a great time. It was a that very is fun how, time. Look, MTV was so influential I on loved my filmmaking it. I journey. I, I mean, it was like, it was an amazing training ground for me. It was just extraordinary. You learned so much on the job. But even even about the way that the MTV titles worked out, you know, with the the, the sort of you know the guy, the space guys, and the taking the whole Andy Wall Warhol color saturation negative. Did I won MTV effect. award. <laughs> That's so cool. When I when I left, I got my award for best MTV best news presenter ever. So that's my. Uh, I got my wobbly MTV I, award, yeah. I 
that is so cool because MTV is so, as I said, it's just so influential. And MTV is was one of those things that I look back on as someone who works in the arts and go, I think it's really time to pay homage to MTV. Yeah. I think to 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 really reference back to its influence because it drew from people like Andy Warhol, it drew from artists like Basquiat, and it moved into music in a whole different way. And it's obviously its influence on pop culture is just beyond profound. Well, please come back and talk about that then once you've made the film, because it'd be great to pick up on that for sure. That'd be awesome. Oh, man, now you've got me really excited now. I'm kind of like, <laughs> I, should, I should be playing in that little, maybe I should jump into that pond. But that's such a cool area. But I'm yeah. so stoked that you um you worked on that. And that's so Yeah, cool. it was great. I loved it. Happy, one of the happiest periods of my life. It was absolutely fantastic and made lifelong friends throughout that that time as well. It was great. And yeah, learned so much as well. Um, before we leave you, Matthew, we really like to get um, you know, something where you with friends, you kind of trusted people that you go, they'll they'll make give you recommendations and stuff. And so we all we do is ask our guests for a, a couple of recommendations of things they've either seen, watched, listened to, something that really is just connected with you that we can pass on to our to our our listeners that go, oh. I'm telling I'm gonna tell you something really cool to your audience to go and do. Get on YouTube. <laughs> and look up the boo.com. So that's B-O-O, boo.com television commercials from the late 90s, directed by Roman Coppola, you know, Sophia <gasps> Coppola's brother, Francis Ford Coppola's son. Yeah. He directed these television commercials for boo.com. <laughs> um, one of them takes place um, on the New York subway, another one in the streets of New York. I think it's New York or maybe it's LA, but these commercials are so groundbreaking and so ahead of their time. <laughs> they are absolutely brilliant. And Boo.com is the subject of a sort of a best-selling book uh, because Boo.com was the was the net-a-porter of the late 90s. And it went, it went bust. But these commercials that Roman Coppola did are so clever and are so artistically influential and so many other artists reference them now. So if, if for all of you out there watching this, if you want a little gem, a little hidden gem that I pretty much guarantee you that 99% of you don't know about, boo.com, TVCs, Roman Coppola, you'll find them on YouTube. They are so cool. They're a great Amazing. watch. That's my little, uh, that's my little uh, offering for today. There's my rabbit hole for the rest of the day. Um, lovely. Thank you. Um, Matthew, so great to chat to you and really kind of, you know, dig into the, the creative process for, for billion dollar heist and i'm really excited to see what's next and thank you so much for your time this evening i should say pleasure it's been so much fun take care have a great one
A wee bit of Lachlan Anderson scored $2 billion heist, rounding off the first part of this soundtrack in double with Matthew Metcalf. And so to Misha, who narrates the film and very much is part of this whole story, as you'll hear. And I wanted to share this with you because although we don't talk music specifically, it's a genuinely fascinating insight into the threat posed by cybercrime. And as I mentioned, Misha wrote McMafia, um, which was fictionalised brilliantly to great acclaim by the BBC. So what better excuse than to play Tom Hodge and Fraz Kerman's main title theme? How are you? Thank you so much for your time today. That's all right, Edith. I'm well. Uh, I'm in Vienna, where I am the oh. rector of the Institute for Human Sciences. Who knew? Wow. Yeah. I mean, I could spend an entire day, to be honest, talking <laughs> to you about your your wonderful career because it covers so many bases. It's a fantastic adventure you've been on in your life so far. But um, there's lots of little things, if you don't mind, I'd really love to talk about and start with Billion Dollar Heist, which is yeah. this. I always find when I watch brilliant documentaries like this, you kind of watch it going, oh, my God, aren't the best stories the real stories and the ones that are that have or are actually happening, which can be terrifying sometimes. But this is an extraordinary story, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's an incredible story, the billion dollar heist, because, frankly, because of the scale involved, you know, the ambition was extraordinary. And this issue of scale is something that's very important because around about 2012, 2013, the FBI noticed that there was a sudden collapse in the number of physical bank heists going on in the United States. I think Mm. it was in 2015, they noticed that it had dropped over the 12-month period to about $17.5 million dollars in all bank raids over the entire United States. And something like the billion dollar heist, even though they didn't manage to get the billion dollars they were aiming for, they still managed to come away with about $81 million. So you so you know, the scale is just ridiculous um, with cyber-based criminality. Your aspirations are just that much greater if you're good at what you you what you do, and you have to be good, I mean, you know, yeah. 
this is not something that anyone can just sit down and uh, sit down and do although many try this mm. required a lot of planning a lot of skills and a lot of human intelligence and even then they managed to screw it up <laughs> just from you saying that whole thing that the FBI had noticed oh bank raids are down kind of thing you know I mean? yeah. that in itself is such a crazy notion that someone's registered that and that has then uh, ignited and go okay well where has you know what's happening where's it all that? gone yeah, yeah. it's so <laughs> bonkers well thing. Edith there was a fact I mean this is a sort of combination of both uh, the work I did on McMafia and the work I did on my yeah. book on cybercrime dark market is is that you had this period in the 1990s and the early 2000s where basically traditional organized crime and cybercrime were running on parallel tracks and they never met in the, in the middle. And mm. I interviewed, particularly during Dark Market, I interviewed people who were involved in cybercrime who had come from traditional organized crime backgrounds i.e. their parents, rather specifically their fathers, have been mm -hmm. involved in uh, traditional organized crime. And they explained that initially, when you got young bucks coming up through mafia organizations, they were trying to persuade the older generation that the real money was in digital. And the older generation who weren't digital natives basically said, oh, I can't get my head around all this newfangled stuff. <laughs> and they carried on with their extortion, their drug dealing, and so on and so forth in the traditional manner. And then in the mid-2000s, you started to see a shift in the leadership of mafia organizations around the world with people, with the younger generation coming in who knew, who understood how powerful digital was. And you started to see the process of the merging of traditional organized crime with, with uh, cyber cyber criminals. And two things happened in, in this case. First of all, what the cyber criminals did was they adopted the models, the structure models of mafia, which is the, the cell structure, so that nobody really knows what anyone else in the organization except the Mr. Big is actually doing. So you get people who concentrate on uh, money laundering, people who concentrate on malware development, and no one really knows who anyone else is. So that if the police bust one person in the team, they can't get to the, they can't get to the rest. And traditional organized crime just basically realized that their work would be much more efficient as any organization was if they adopted digital techniques. So that's what happens. And then you get a boom with trad organized crime and, and cyber criminals coming together in a way that we'd never seen before. I mean, it's a big conversation. And as there's so many avenues that we could take in terms of, of what, you know, what we could talk about. But with regards to a normal person in terms of the fear around cyber crime that affects, that could affect your average person on a daily basis and stuff, it just seems to be kind of growing and the growth of it is kind of, you know, the you go to your junk mail and the amount of kind of things that have fallen in there of people trying to get access to any kind of details of you is kind of like the the number of that it's multiplying is is mm. terrifying sometimes as well. Is there a next phase to it? Is there a is there something that's beyond cybercrime that's the kind of next thing? Or because 
yeah. it's either going to implode or there's it's kind of something else has got to kind of materialize out of it almost in a way. Well, well, the next thing in cybercrime is artificial intelligence. And oh. uh, we're already seeing that. So along with ChatGPT and GPT-4 that you will have heard of, um, OpenAI, we now have something called Fraud GPT and Worm GPT. And these are artificial intelligence programs written by criminals, uh, which are designed to aid other criminals in perpetrating crime over the over the internet. So one of the things that fraud GPT does is it writes much better fake letters for you than you can do yourself. So people who are who are launching a phishing attack, that's sending an email which you'll download the attachment and infect your computer, i.e. persuading you to do something with your as a as a customer, as an ordinary person with your computer that you shouldn't. One of the problems with with that always was that you could tell because the language was so bad that you could tell that it was a fake operation. So you just mm. ignored it or you sent it to spam or whatever and recorded it. Now what they're doing is, is they're becoming much, much better at writing letters which look not just as though they come from that they're well constructed and well written, but they look as though they come from someone that you know. And it can even ape the style of writing that that person that that person would use. These before were always things which you could use as a check when someone was trying to hack into your computer through a phishing attack. You would always know how your mother wrote to you, how your best friend wrote to you, or whatever. Now you can't entirely be sure who it is that's writing to you because they can ape and imitate the language that you use much better than was the case. And they can do that by going through all your public writings, your emails that are available online and that sort of thing. Wow. It's so interesting because the, the AI conversation is something that we've been having. This podcast that I do called Soundtrack and where I speak to, you know, people mm. in the creative industry around film mm. and music and, and, and you know, obviously there's a, a huge conversation going on right now with regards to, to the writers and um, in, in the States and actors as well, just in terms of that side of things and the representation of human form and AI and the ownership of that and, you know, kind of relinquishing almost control of your image. Uh, that's a big discussion around that as well. But interestingly, I was chatting to Asif Kapadia last week, the wonderful mm -hmm. British filmmaker, who mm. his next film is very much in kind of your realm in terms mm. of what he's he's planning on doing. And he drew to my attention just in terms of how this whole discussion around the creative industries is almost kind of distracting from another element of AI, particularly around next year and the number of elections that are happening around mm. the world oh, and oh. how AI is going to be a huge part in in that and what yeah, it can yeah, fabricate yeah. and what it can do. That's absolutely right. I mean, here at the Institute where I work in Vienna, we are focusing a lot on this, on AI and, and elections. Uh, we've got a whole string of elections coming up here in Central Europe, in Slovakia, in Poland. And then, of course, next year, we've also got the presidential uh, elections in the United States. And everyone is extremely worried about the flood of bots and, uh, uh, you know, videos which are made by artificial intelligence, uh, which nobody has to sign off on. Mm. Um, 
they don't yet have a, a watermarking system on these on these things. And so this is a real concern, AI and politics, AI and the creative industries. I myself did a little bit of uh, a study on, on the impact of AI in publishing. And uh, it's, it's coming at the publishing industry like an express train. But at, at the mm-hmm. moment, people think that the light is the end of the tunnel and not the express train itself, which is what it in fact is. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, uh, problems here. And the other thing is, is the crime aspect, because it was three years ago that I was alerted to GPT-3 when a friend of mine, who actually also appears in the film, Mikko Hippanen, who's a, who's a Finnish cybersecurity engineer, he had been invited to California to go and test out, because he's a very well-known head of the technical department at this cybersecurity company, test out GPT-3. And he came back to Europe, rang me up and said, I've just seen the future and it's terrifying because GPT-3 can write its own malware programs. And it, he said it, he had even uh, asked it to write a polymorphic program, which is a piece of malware, which when it encounters a defensive, a digital defense system is able to rewrite itself in order to get around that defense system. He said this is very, very disturbing. So things like the billion dollar heist, if you get the core program in the hands of of criminals, and increasingly Mm. it's going to be able to do that, then it's just going to be a a boom time for them. That's crazy. Mm. Billion dollar heist. How does that? How does this particular project come to you? You know, in terms of your involvement in it. So after I've written Dark Market, after I wrote McMafia first of all, and I'm I interviewed a couple of cyber criminals for McMafia and also some security engineers, and I realised then when I was writing McMafia that cyber was going to be incredibly important in the criminal world. So I decided. As it turned out, prematurely, I think <laughs> I, I published it too early. To uh, you're ahead of the times, Misha. No, Always ahead was, of the times <laughs> <laughs> to write to write Dark Market, and so it was the production company that got in touch with me first. This is about eighteen months ago. I'm just looking up to see when it was. Anyway, about mm. eighteen months. General Film Company in yeah. New Zealand, and I started speaking to Matthew, who runs the company. And he wanted initially to make a film of Dark Market, of the book, a documentary of Dark Market, but that was actually already under contract with the BBC for a, for a fictional drama. And so instead he said, well, look, I'll buy up the non-fiction rights and we'll do something else with it. And so he asked me, he said, what is, what is the biggest cybercrime that you know of? And I said, well, in 2016, the one that everyone knows who's involved in cybercrime, in early 2016, this group of uh, hackers, we think from North Korea, uh, although it's not 100% ascertained that, mm. uh, tried to steal a billion dollars and got within about two hours of achieving that billion dollars nonetheless got away with about 100 million. Uh, and there's actually been nothing to com- compete with it. There have been some big hacks since then, but nothing quite as ambitious as this. And as it turned out, even though everybody in the cyber 
security or cybercrime community knew about this hack from beginning to end, that it hadn't really penetrated the wider world at all. And that actually points, Edith, and this is a really important thing about the difficulty of making either fictional or non-fiction films about cyber and cybercrime in particular, because so much of it is nerd in front of keyboard doing a lot of typing of numbers. And it's, uh, you know, it's mogadon for television. It's death to television, basically. And so you've got to think of ways of doing it that breaks through the classic screen keyboard problem that cyber always yes. faces. And so Dan decided the the director, who's a he's a, a very very talented director, Dan Gordon. He's from Sheffield, big Sheffield Wednesday fan. But that's an entirely separate. Everybody issue. has their issues. Everyone is there has their issues. <laughs> but uh, he he did he did an abs- a couple of absolutely brilliant films. One was on Hillsborough, uh, yeah. on the Hillsborough disaster, and one was on. Australia and a, a really brilliant documentary, The Australian Dream, about r- the pervasiveness of a non-recognition of racism in Australian society. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So he decided to do a mixture this time of uh, uh, essentially of animation and and interviews. And the animation is done, I think, really, really well and is what yeah. what takes the film out. Because, you know, it's good to have lively interviewees, but talking heads on their own aren't going to do it. So he decided to go for that for that mixture. And um, and I think it worked really well. It's wonderful. I mean, you say that kind of thing of trying to break through to get people to, I guess, pay attention to what's going on, really. Your work has had this fantastic journey of going from page to screen. You know, it's got this great thing, McMafia, James Norton and that. Real, you've got someone like James Norton front in the story. Everybody's going to pay attention, you know, great, yeah. great talent. I mean, and that was a fantastic production. You must be very happy with how that translated onto uh, to screen. Do you know, McMafia was an absolutely terrific experience. I have to highlight the writer-in-chief, Hossamini, who's also the <laughs> yeah. creative. Uh, Hoss did an absolutely fantastic job, as did James Watkins, his co-writer, co-creator, and and the director of all eight episodes. And because the two of them had worked together, because we were doing it over eight hours, it was really like an eight-hour film, but but broken up. And it was a bit of a slow burn in terms of audience reaction, but that burn got brighter and brighter. And I worked quite closely on it. I was in the writer's room for it, and I was uh, there throughout the for filming and for um, as as a consultant, and we were, it made a lot of money for the BBC. It had a big impact on politics in the United Kingdom, in particular. It took the word McMafia, the title from my original book, and turned it into a concept, as it were. And uh, James, I think James is really critical for McMafia because. He's a very, very smart guy. He got a first from Cambridge. In fact, I think a double first from Cambridge. You know, he read the book. He discussed it with me, with Haas and everything. He really wanted to understand 
who this character was, where he was coming from, and so on, and and so on, and so forth. And uh, in the end, it, t- it turned out to be a really successful show, made a lot of money for the BBC and for uh, for Amazon and for AMC, and we're we're thrilled with it. We're involved in the whole side of it, you know. When something like that is taken onto that to that side of, of that creative industry, then your music is a part of it. And, you know, Tom Hodge mm. and Franz Kerman, who did the mm. music for it and mm. stuff. Were you were you part of those conversations at all? Were you were you did you? I wasn't. You know, I, I wasn't involved in. I wasn't involved in the music, although I like the music a lot. Yeah. Uh, uh, but. I was, I actually appear in the film. I even have a, a speaking part in episode <laughs> five, uh, reliving Look at your life. face lighting up when you're talking <laughs> about that. Know, yeah, it was great. It was like, I actually, uh, oddly, uh, my degree is in drama. I did, uh, I majored in drama at Bristol University. Yeah. And so I did a lot of acting then. And so it was, it was Finally to got to exercise back his in job. the saddle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, so that was uh, fun. And yes, I was, I was really, I was, I was very involved. I, I mean, more so than writers usually usually are. Mm. Uh, and that's, I think, primarily because uh, Hoss and James were just very intelligent people to work with, and so rather than seeing me as a, a threat, because you uh, look you sell the rights to a book and that's it you no longer have any control you don't have control over how it's going to be filmed unless you're you know so famous that you can write in editorial control into the contract and basically yeah. most, you can't and it's odd to have a book uh, either dark market or mcmafia to go from non-fiction to fiction and uh, i had seen both Hosses and James work, and uh, you know, I've we had long discussions before we got going. I fully trusted them, and yeah. I was right to invest that trust in them. And it meant that they didn't feel threatened by me at all. And I was just thrilled that you know, suddenly the audience for this subject, which is the globalization of organized crime, the politics involved in it, the corruption of global politics, and so on, had a much much bigger audience. So it was it was just great. There are certain films, you know, I think that really connect as well when it comes to the subject matter and make you kind of kind of internalise slightly on your actions and being more aware of things as well. One for me was The Dissident, which I don't know if you if you saw about the um, the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Oh, and, no. I mean, I know the phenom- Khashoggi story very well. I had I didn't I didn't there's even know. Ama- I mean, it's terrible that it's passed. No, there's by. an amazing documentary. And, and right. I get and the way that they tell the story about the kind of um they're almost like human bots who are on social media trying to kind of, you know, with the trending and how that can influence things as well. Yeah. It was kind of a really sort of, and also the, the um, you know, with the cybersecurity on your mobile phones and things by simply kind yeah. of going onto a site, it can open your phone up to, you know, simple things, but kind of was like, you know, you know within this this fantastic story, it was, I, I was learning sort of so much. And I think that that's something that's so brilliant about, you know about your your books, but also the way that they are taken onto screen, whether it be through you know documentaries or through or through drama. They really mm. kind of um, they're telling human stories and real stories, and that's kind of why yeah. they connect. What's the thing that makes that ignites you to to sit down and want to you know research and start telling a story about a specific thing? You know, I think it's it's things that I come across which 
I identify as very important, but which haven't yet sort of grabbed the general attention. And, and yeah. what I want to do, so I decided to write a book about crime. What I was really writing about was about politics and global politics and what had happened to the world since the collapse of communism in 1989. That certainly pertains to McMafia, but in terms of dark market and then the billion dollar heist, uh, what I identified fairly early on is is that is that question that I raised at the beginning, the question of of scale. You have I've been doing some work, funnily enough, with this unrelated on the Renaissance and Reformation and about the impact of printing on political discourse in the sixteenth century. Wow. And then I started looking at the impact of telegraph and rail on political discourse in the 19th century. And I realized that the information technology was one of these moments where technology is going to change social life upside down. Mm -hmm. But with the internet, in which you have no central control really over the internet, it's, uh, it's atomized and dispersed to all of these individuals, the rate of social change is much, much faster than was the case after the invention of printing and the book and or, or the mass distribution of the book, uh, or indeed during the Industrial Revolution. It's just much, much faster now. So you mm. have the thing of things like um, MySpace, which seemed to dominate everything for about two or three years and then it collapsed after about two or three years. Things go up and down very quickly. Mm. And humans find it ever more difficult to, to get any sense of control over what is going on in the world. And that's why I thought Dark Market was an important book, is, is to describe the, how you only need a few people who recognize the negative side of uh, cyber to be able to wreak havoc in a way that yeah. we haven't seen before. Do you ever kind of not fear for your safety sort of thing, but is it something that you think about with regards to things that you are talking about and you're, you know, unearthing sometimes? Is it something that you you consider? I had some problems after McMafia, but yeah. they're problems that went away, one from Bulgaria and one from Montenegro. But when I'm researching the books is probably the most dangerous bit of all. So, for example, on um, at Mafia, I went to see members of the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, who were basically mm. uh, a cocaine cartel in fatigues. And that was that was risky. So there were several meetings I had during Mafia, which had a high level of risk. So what you what you're always having to do is to lower your risk as much as possible. You only go through intermediaries and interlocutors to get to these people, because you have to go through intermediaries yeah. almost, almost invariably, who you really, really trust. And you put little quiet mechanisms in place to make sure that if something goes wrong, then other people are alerted to it and will react uh, relatively, relatively quickly. On the whole, once you get in front of people, somebody who's whether a hacker or whether a, uh, um, a corrupt politician or an organized crime person, you have the great advantage that there is nothing that people like doing better 
than talking about themselves. And so, <laughs> so once they once they no longer feel threatened by you, it's yada 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 yada, and they talk and talk and talk, and they become quite relaxed about it. And that's once you've got them in a sort of relaxed situation, that's when they tell you when they first became engaged with crime or when they were doing their first doing their oh. first deal or whatever and that's when it's you you and you sitting there and as a journalist you're sitting there and you think you're you're just waiting for the interview to this be over gold. getting it yeah i got it i got it <laughs> done it and then you get safe back home yeah oh it's been so great to chat to you one last thing do you ever listen to yeah. music when you're writing uh, I do listen to music when I'm writing, but I I will listen to classical music when I'm when I'm writing, when I'm driving or out on a trip. Then I'll listen to uh, all sorts of music. But if it's a song that I really like, I can't concentrate on the writing. If it's kind of you know, if it's relaxing background background baroque or or um, classical, then uh, that's fine. By the time you get to to the Romantics by Rachmaninoff or Tchaikovsky. I can no longer do that because I'm listening to the the tunes are so compelling. Oh, Misha, it's been so wonderful to get to chat to you. Really, really is. I could, there's, I've got a, a billion other things that I'd love to chat to you about, but maybe we can do that another time. But thank you so much for being so generous of your time today and chatting to me. And I look forward to what's next as well. So, yeah, thank you for okay, what you do. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you very much. I've, I've enjoyed it and it's nice Aww. meeting you, albeit you virtually. Too. From Tom Hodge and Fraz Kerman's score to McMafia, that is How to Talk to an Intruder. Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Matthew Metcalf and Misha Glennie. My huge thanks to both for taking the time to talk to me. Billion Dollar Heist is available to rent and own on digital platforms now and I highly recommend that you watch it. It's one that you can watch. You know, I've got a teenage son and it's something that I want to sit down and watch because it's definitely relevant to their age group as well in terms of what's coming, what's there already and kind of what we should be thinking about. Head to edithbowman.com or wherever you get your podcast to hear every single episode of the podcast. 
Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtrack UK and check out our YouTube channel for loads of extra content. We've got Ludwig Gorenson and Greta Gerwig who've just recently gone up there. Next week, uh, in fact, over the next couple of weeks, we're really focusing on little independent British films, which is a lovely and much needed thing to do. And kind of almost like in the current state of things with the strikes still ongoing uh, and talent as such, uh, you know, both in the form of directors who write and actors not really being available. It's a lovely opportunity for us to kind of open your eyes to maybe smaller projects that you might not have known about. So first up, we're going to be talking about Clock and Luder uh, with Neil Maskell and Andy from the Shortwave set who's done the score for it. And that'll be followed by uh, Ryan Hendricks talking about his film Mercy Falls. Both of them are going to be out in cinemas from the 1st of September. So please do your bit and get out there and support little independent British films. So Clock and Luder and Mercy Falls, both out in cinemas on the 1st of September. But next week, you can hear me chat to Neil and Andy about their film Clock and Luder. <laughs> 